morning. I want to say a particular word of welcome to those of you who are new here today. My name is Alex. We are thrilled if you're joining us here for the first time, whether you're in person or online. Uh, what we're all about here at Chatham Church is really simple. It's just about connecting, connecting people to God, connecting people to each other. So together we can engage our world for good, kind of in Jesus' name, according to his purposes and what he is up to here in this uh, weary world. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so, so glad you're here. Uh, all summer long, we're going through this series called Signature Moments. Most of us have friends, family members, people that we love that uh, have these stories that kind of encapsulate who they are, their quirks, their personalities, and we love to tell these stories over and over and over again about kind of the people that we love and these signature stories. God has his own signature stories, his own signature moments. And so we're going from Genesis all the way through to Revelation throughout the course of this series, looking at God's signature moments. What happens? How does God move in these people's lives? And how do people respond? Because when God's signature grace meets faithful responses, it unleashes all kinds of grace of the world, all kinds of beauty, all kinds of redemptive power, all kinds of hope, uh, where there was no hope, all kinds of, uh, yeah, renewal, truth, righteousness get released when God's signature activity meets faithful response. So what we're doing throughout the course of this series is we're just trying to grow, one, what does God's signature activity look like? Because you don't want to miss it. You don't want to push back against it. You don't want to ignore it or run away from it. We want to lean into it. So what does God's signature activity look like? Because sometimes it's surprising what it looks like. And then secondly, what does faithful response look like? What does it look like to actually respond faithfully? All kinds of different faithful responses. All kinds of different personalities in different situations. To get a picture or a sense of what God's up to and how we might be a part of what God's doing. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the danger of a signature moment series. It's a little bit like your social media newsfeed over the summer. All your friends going on picture-perfect vacations, right, with their picture-perfect families and picture-perfect settings, all intended to make you feel jealous and bad about your life. Amen? So, right, so that, that's the danger of doing these things, right, that we're looking at these signature moments. We're cherry-picking these highlight reels, and it can make some of us feel like, gosh, my, my walk with God, my life with God, it doesn't look like that, right? Even though these are once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-whole-generation kind of moments, it can kind of feed an unholy or unhealthy discontent. That's one of the concerns I have. We, we solve that problem today with the passage Greg just read and the stoning to death of Stephen. That's not on anyone's social media news feed uh, over the summer. But here's why this is such a, a good passage for us to look at and why it's an, a, a helpful thing for us to get our hearts and minds around and why this might be a good signature moment for you today. In the moment of the stoning to death of Stephen, it looks horrible, evil, it's wicked, there's all kinds of stuff happening and the religious leaders are conspiring against this guy and it's hor it is all those things. It's horrible, it's wicked, it's evil, it's lost, but what God does with wickedness. And how Stephen is resilient in the face of that wickedness is full of the power of God. Has all kinds of things to teach us and to show us. And that's good news for all of us today. Whether you are a Jesus follower your whole life or this is your first time ever in church or you're still figuring out what do I believe or what do I think about this whole thing. No matter, no matter what you believe or where you are, we all are going to experience wickedness and or loss, aren't we? You're going to try to build your whole life. Trying to manage around that stuff. How do I minimize wickedness and loss? How do I kind of insulate myself? But none of us gets a pass on dealing with wickedness or the fallout from wickedness and or loss. And what this passage shows us is what God has the power to do in the face of wickedness and loss. And what this passage shows us is how might we be resilient in the face of challenges, wickedness, and loss. Maybe more resilient than you could even imagine yourself in the face of challenge and persecution, trials, 
and sorrows. Today we're going to look at how do we grow in resilience in the face of some of the setbacks and how do we grow in trusting God when we're experiencing loss and setbacks along the way. Now, let's set the stage. We're picking up the story at the end of Acts chapter 6. Most of it's Acts chapter 7. But let's go back all the way to Acts chapter 1. At the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, you have the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples. And he gives them a couple instructions from Acts 1. Acts 1, first instruction is wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing they're supposed to do. Second thing they're supposed to do is once they have that Holy Spirit, they have a mission. They have a map. And the map is this. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, this capital city where they are, when Jesus is talking to them. Judea, that's the surrounding area. That'd be a little bit like saying you're going to be my witnesses in Pittsburgh and Chatham County, right? That's the area around there. And then he says to Samaria as well. The disciples are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't like the Samaritans. We don't get along with them. There's some ethnic stuff, some racial stuff, some religious stuff. There's tension and conflicts every so often between them and the Samaritans. It's a little bit like if you're a deep Chatham person and you, you like your five to 50 acres and no neighbors. It's a little bit like God sending you to carry. Don't want anything to do with those people. So God says, no, 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 you're going to go to the people who are kind of your enemies, your historical enemies. You're going to go to them too. And then to the ends of the earth. Now listen, if you're an ancient Jew throughout the Old Testament, the whole, the whole glory of being a Jewish people is there's this land and you're there. And to be spread out through all the nations, they don't want to see the world. They don't want to travel. It's not their goal. Their goal is to be kind of gathered together again as a nation because they're a conquered nation and they're scattered throughout all, the, all of the Mediterranean and the area. And really what they want to be is back together again. And God says, no, no, no. The goal is not to gather you together again in, the, in this one land. The goal is to send you out to all the nations. That's the marching orders in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2, you have the story where all, this, all the, 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 the worshipers are gathered together, about 120 of them in this big, big house. And uh, the Spirit falls on them finally. This is several weeks after Jesus' ascension. And they start speaking all these different languages, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They spill out to Jerusalem, and it's Pentecost. And Pentecost is this major Jewish holiday. Thousands of Jews from all over the ancient Mediterranean all gather together in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And they show up, and they hear the noise and the racket, and Peter stands up and gives one of the most significant sermons, not just in biblical history, in all of history, because it launches the church, which has changed more lives than anything else in human history. And he explains what's going on. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus, 3,000 people become Christians that day. And the church is off and running in Acts chapter 2. Now, there's a famous problem among Bible nerds about the book of Acts, okay? So here's a Bible nerd problem. The Bible nerd problem in Acts is this. No one can quite tell how much time elapses between events that get recorded. So between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6 and 7 that Greg just read for us, there's a whole lot of conversation about how much time elapses. Some Bible nerds say one year. Some Bible nerds say five to seven years. That's a big change, right? But here's what we know between Acts 2 and Acts chapter 6 and 7 when Stephen gets arrested, that the church is growing and growing and growing like crazy. That's the first thing. And the second thing we know is that the church is still hunkered down in Jerusalem one to five years Later, pop quiz, were you paying attention? Where were the disciples supposed to go after the Holy Spirit fell? Jerusalem, and then where? Judea, and where? Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But you know what? Jerusalem's really comfortable, really safe. Good things are happening here. So one to five years later, they are still hunkered down in Jerusalem. And then Stephen gets arrested in Acts chapter 6. And then in Acts chapter 7, you get this really interesting thing. In Acts chapter 7, you get the longest recorded sermon in all of Acts. It really one of the longest sermons in the whole Bible. That's recorded, recorded word for 
word in Acts chapter 7. Now, here's a little, a little Bible nerd tip here for you. In, in the ancient world, writing was laborious and tedious, and parchment was expensive. It wasn't just like paper lying around everywhere. So who and what gets the most ink tells you what's the most important. Who or what gets the most ink tells you what's most important. Luke, the guy who's writing Acts, records this sermon, and it's so long. I mean, Greg initially was going to read the whole thing. It was nine and a half minutes long, so we, had a, we trimmed it in half, basically, what Greg just read. Nine half minutes, the longest sermon recorded word for word for word, and the question is, why? There's all kinds of more famous sermons in Acts, actually. If you've been around the Bible and churches for a long time, Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon in Acts 2, that one gets talked about all the time. Uh, if, you're, if you know Acts at all, later Paul goes to the Areopagus and speaks to some of these Greek philosophers, and that sermon gets quoted all the time. Hundreds of other sermons, they get no ink whatsoever. But here, in Acts chapter 7, we get the longest recorded sermon in the whole book of Acts. Actually, maybe in the, in the whole Bible. Why? Luke clearly wants us to be wants to name this as a signature moment. Now, one of the signature moments is this: Stephen is one of the very first martyrs of the ancient church, right? So, by the time he sits down to write Acts, there's been lots more martyrs that have gone on. A lot of other people have died in Jesus' name for Jesus. So, he wants to note this is a major turning point in the story of the church. But it's also in part because of what happens immediately after the stoning to death of Stephen. Here's what happens in Acts chapter eight. Right after Stephen gets killed by the religious leaders for preaching about Jesus. Acts 8 reads this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered where? Throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Isn't that interesting? The stoning of Stephen kicks off the first persecution which propels the church outward to the plan and the purposes Jesus had from the very beginning. They are finally getting on the map that Jesus gave to them just before he went up to be with his father. Part of the reason why this story is so important in Acts is because the church was turned inward and this is the first time they finally move outward. And the truth of the matter is this. Every organization, every community, the churches, the Boy Scouts, Fortune 500 companies, your knitting club, your soccer team, your friend group, whoever you go to the beach with, every single community of human beings has a natural bent and gravitational pull inward. And the church was always supposed to be going out. And so, my friends, here at Chatham Community Church, we have five core values. One of those is we want to be an outward-facing church. And this is one of the hardest core values for us to deliver on consistently. Because here's the deal, we are here as a church to declare the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus to each other and to the world in all of Chatham County. And every week I greet new people because every week we want new people to be here and hear the good news that we're building our lives on. And so we as a church are going to be a community that's going to always be facing outward. And I want to invite you to hold us accountable. How are we doing at turning out and saying we want to declare to our good news I declare to our neighbors the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That's going to be top priority for us as a community because every community has a natural bent toward in. It's not a bad thing for us to care for each other, right? That's going to be a value and a priority we continually express, how we love each other, how we care for each other. Super important. And at the same time, we want to have people who move out to our neighbors, ultimately to the nations. Now, what happens at this point for the rest of the book of Acts, is the church and the people go all, they do go to the, all the nations, and this causes problems. 
because the people that they're talking to that are becoming Christians in Galatia and Ephesus, they aren't Christians, they aren't Jews, they have, they have pagan backgrounds, and these people have never eaten together before, they've never worshipped together before. And so what happens for the rest of the New Testament, are there's all these conflicts along what we would call racial and ethnic lines. The whole New Testament is full of the church trying to navigate racial and ethnic differences. There's all this wisdom and all this power, and as I, as I say around here often, our country comes, as our country comes unglued along racial and ethnic lines, we declare the good news. The New Testament has power and wisdom to help us to walk and break through and bridge racial and ethnic lines. So as Luke is writing the book of Acts, there's all this tumult and turmoil along racial and ethnic lines. How does the church navigate all these differences? And what Luke is doing is saying, hey guys, remember, Jesus told us to do this. It's worth it. We're going to keep working at this. We have to figure this thing out. Because this is what matters to Jesus. And so Luke sort of puts his flag down and says, we're going to spend a lot of time in this space looking at the, the launch to the, the nations here in Acts chapter 7. And so on the other side of Stephen's stoning to death, the church finally goes to the nations. Now to be clear, let's make sure it's all clear, the stoning of Stephen wasn't a good thing. <laughs> right? Religious leaders trumping up charges, lying, and then murdering a man, that's not good, right? There's nothing about that that's good or right. It's, it's, it's a bad, bad thing. And let's, let's put a flag on this too. God doesn't stop it. God doesn't stop it. And that can be really hard, right? And that's a whole different message and a whole different sermon. We're going to come back to that at some other point. Like, what, sometimes God intervenes. Most of the time, God lets things play out. But here's what happens on the other side of this horrible event. And this is God's signature. What God is doing is redeeming wickedness and loss by weaving it into his purposes and his plans. God's at work redeeming wickedness and loss by weaving it into his good purposes and his plans. This is good news, isn't it? Because you've experienced wickedness and loss. And I've experienced wickedness and loss. There will be times when people are genuinely out to get you, or just someone's greed, right? Like you're in a big corporation, and the people running the show are greedy, and then suddenly the company falls apart, and you're out of a job because of someone else's wickedness and, and greed, and that causes consequences, right? Or just loss, right? Just you experience, not, not through anyone out to get you. It's just there's something happened, and you feel that you lost something that was valuable to you. Stephen, Stephen's death was a huge loss for the church, he was powerful, he was mighty, he did signs and wonders. This was not a small loss. Everything about this is evil, wicked. There's nothing good, holy, or beautiful about it, and yet God weaves it into his plan, which is good, beautiful, and holy. So here's the hope. The hope is God's at work, and God can bring good out of even the most horrible loss. Now, this is the first century, of course, we're talking about in Acts, and we're in the 21st century, and, you know, uh, it can be a faithful response, right, for us to call the cops, take someone to court, like, uh, talk to the teacher or the principal if you're a student, right? There's, there, we have recourse that they didn't have in the first century, but sometimes there's no recourse, is there? Sometimes nothing you can do about it. There's just bad things happening, and you're left holding the bag of anger, resentment, and maybe a whole bunch of problems that you have to figure out how to fix and navigate. And so on the other side, of, or in the middle of, the experience of wickedness and or loss, let me give you a prayer that you might pray that might help you to kind of orient yourself around God's grace and around the fact that God is capable and very graciously redeems even our, our difficult and heartbreaking, heartbreaking losses. Here's a little prayer I like to pray. Lord, this stinks. 
Would you redeem it by weaving it into your life-giving purposes? I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Would you read that with me? Lord, this stinks. Would you redeem it by weaving it into your life-giving purposes? I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Uh, yeah, we're naming it, right? We're not going to pretend it's not hard or bad. This stinks. It's hard. And some of you might need to use stronger language than stinks. It's okay. God can handle it. But we're also trusting that God can redeem it by weaving it into his good purposes, his good plans. His plans, his purposes are always good. They're always life-giving. And we're making a promise, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do, even if I've been resistant to this point. Right? Even if I've been unwilling to leave Jerusalem, and I knew you want me to go to Judea and Samaria, and I don't want to, but you know what, God? I am willing. If you want me to do something or go somewhere, I'm telling you right here, right now, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Stonio Stephen, terrible, wicked. God's purposes, God's plan, what God brings out of it, good, life-giving. He could do the same thing for you if you're here today in the midst of a really difficult situation, grieving loss, or face-to-face with like a genuine enemy that you're like locked in with. And I invite you to pray and trust in God's good, redemptive purposes and plans. Now, it's one thing as a church community to reflect back on it, right? As Luke is writing Acts several years after these events happened, he can, look, he can write this story and be like, hey, you know what? God did good things out of this. This is great. The church moved out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, just like Jesus told us to. So it's one thing if you're the church looking back and saying God did something good out of it anyway. Here's the question. What if you're Stephen? What if you're Stephen and you're not getting out of this alive? What if you're Stephen and the things that are unfolding are doing so much damage to you your health, your family, your life. How do you stay resilient then? Because the Christians in the early church, they endured so much persecution. I mean, we are here in spite of all kinds of people's best efforts to squash out faith and Christianity. Over the centuries, people have tried to kill this thing over and over and over again. And yet our ancestors remained resilient and faithful. How? They faced things way worse than almost any of us will ever face. How do they remain resilient? We're gonna, I'm going to look at how Stephen remains resilient. And again, this morning, if you're here, you're not a Christian, not a believer, I'm, I'm going to talk about how Stephen stays resilient because he finds his life in the Christian story. This is why we love the story so much. This is why we love this story so much, because it has helped people fight through so much pain, so much heartache, so much setback and that for the centuries. It has changed more lives, touched more lives, and what we find is when we build our lives on this love and on this story, it changes us. Helps us to be stronger than we thought we could be. And that's exactly what happens here with Stephen. So let's reset the scene. Stephen has been arrested by some mid-level religious guys for proclaiming, they, they make up charges about kind of who he is and what he's saying. So they take him to the highest religious court in the land, the Sanhedrin. They take him to the highest religious court in the land. And you know what Stephen does is he faces the most religious guys in the whole country. You know what he does? He, t- he gives them a Sunday school lesson. He tells them the story from Genesis all the way through to the Exodus, all the way through to the exile. My friends, these are the most religious guys in the, in the country. They know this story. They know the story backward and forward. Why is Stephen telling the most religious people in the country the story they already know? And why is it recorded word for word so long that Luke gives us so much, so much, uh, so much ink, so much real estate? I want to suggest to you there's a couple of reasons 
why Stephen, in his worst moment, tells the story of Israel to a bunch of guys who already know the story of Israel. And the first one is made evident by how he sort of tells the story. About the whole back half of how Stephen tells the story, he just highlights the people's rebellion against God over and over and over again. How much they've pushed back against God over and over and over again. And as Stephen closes his Sunday school lesson to the Sanhedrin, as he's, he doesn't give them animal crackers and a cute song to wrap up his sermon. He comes strong and hard on them as he closes the message. Let's look at this one more, one more time. He calls them, you stiff-necked people. I've always thought stiff-necked would be a great band name. Alex and the stiff-necks. Stiff-necked just means like they're resistant, they're, right, they're stubborn. I love that description, except that it unfortunately describes me way too often about my spiritual life. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is how many of us, including myself, have issues in our lives that need to be fixed or worked on or dealt with habits and practices that we need to change. We actually don't want to get well. Yeah, you have any kind of, do you have anything in your life you're like, ah, I should work on that, but it feels like a lot of work, and I have to give up some stuff or do some more. I'm not sure I want to do the work to get well in this place, right? As Stephen closes out his Sunday school lesson to the most religious guys in the land, he declares to them, you are just like your ancestors. The guys in power before you have done this over and over and over again, and y'all don't want to get well because to get well means you'd have to, you'd have to release control and power, and we like that as humans, don't we? Anyone here like power and control? It's a big thing. Y'all don't want to get well. And so Stephen tells the story. He lands the story on this. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Y'all, you people, the Sanhedrin, you religious leaders, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you resist the Holy Spirit. People's Exhibit A, was there ever a prophet that your ancestors, your people, did not persecute? And then let's land it in the biggest sort of mistake and blunder in religious history. You even killed the righteous one. You even killed Jesus. You murdered him. To remain resilient in the midst of the biggest storm of his life that's going to end his life. You know what Stephen does? Stephen remembers and recites the story. It's God's story. And Stephen is finding himself, locating himself in that moment in God's story. He remembers and recites the story of what's happened before him. And what's gone on before him. And one of the things he takes from that story as he kind of draws it together to the most religious guys of the country is this. No surprises, you people have always resisted the Holy Spirit. No surprises when people come against you. No surprises when wicked things happen to you. No surprises when people conspire against you, lie about you, sort of spread rumors about you, when people are out to get you. No surprises. People have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Sanhedrin should have known better. All those religious guys in the past should have known better. They had the law. They had the scriptures. But they resisted and resisted and resisted over and over again all the way to the death of Jesus. My friends, I've got some really bad news for you. People have always resisted God's Holy Spirit. And as long as people resist the Holy Spirit, people are going to do terrible things to each other. No surprises. God's Holy Spirit is a life-giving spirit. You resist the life-giving spirit, you're going to contribute to death. That's how it goes. God's Spirit is a life-giving spirit. If you're resisting the Holy Spirit, it's going to have consequences. 
And so Stephen says, hey, when the Holy Spirit, when people resist the Holy Spirit, this is what happens. As long as you're resisting God's good spirit, these kind of things are going to happen over and over again. Now, that doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't mean it's good, right? It doesn't mean there's not, ang- there's not room for anger or even righteous anger, not self-righteous anger, righteous anger. It's especially true if your pain or betrayal is in a church context, right? Hey, if you're new here, to, if you're new here today or this summer and you've got church baggage, welcome to the club, about a third of the people sitting around you have some sort of church baggage. I bet someone has matching baggage. It looks just like yours. And whenever I meet with people who have church baggage, I always want to hear the story. Hey, tell me your story. Tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. And two things always happen to me. One, I always grieve it. And two, I'm never surprised. Religious people have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Religious people have always resisted the Holy Spirit. And so there's consequences. That doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean we don't call it out and name it. It just means we're not surprised. Because part of the sting of when you get betrayed or when someone's coming after you is like, I can't believe this person's doing this to me, right? I can't believe this has happened. I didn't know that people would do this to each other. That's, a, that's part of the sting of it. And so part of what takes the sting out of this is like, you know what? I'm never going to be surprised when someone betrays or does something wicked or evil. People have always resisted God's life-giving Holy Spirit. If you're in a hard spot right now, I want to invite you to land in one spot along with, Steve, along with Stephen here in this message. Hey, you know what? Help me to be grounded in the truth. People have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean it's an excuse, doesn't mean it's okay. It just means I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. Stephen recites this, right? It's a part of his accusation to the, to the Sanhedrin, but also as a way for him to be anchored and rooted in what is true. Now, the second reason why Stephen tells the story that they all knew already and recites sort of the Sunday school lesson to the Sanhedrin, I think is, 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 it comes through in the way he tells the story and where he starts. Here's how Stephen started his address to the Sanhedrin. He says this, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. That's how he starts his address. So here's the question. Who kickstarts the whole story? Who kickstarts the story? God. Whose story is it? God's story. Who is faithful when the people are faithless? God is faithful. Who continues to pursue people even when people resist the spirit, resist the spirit, resist the spirit? God does. Who has the first word of the story? God appeared. Who has the last word of the story? God will say the last word of the story, the last amen over the story. This is God's story from start to end, beginning to end. It's God, 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 all woven throughout this whole story of Israel's failure that Stephen tells. He comes back to the good news that God is sovereign over every single story, even in the midst of the mess. It's a signature resilience is this good news. This is God's story, not the stiff-necked resistors of the Holy Spirit story. It's a little bit hunky, but I just like the stiff-necked thing, so I put it in there. This is God's story, not the stiff-necked resistors of the Holy Spirit story. And what that means is, even when I'm stiff-necked and resist the Holy Spirit, God has the last word over me. And what that means is, when I'm up against something or someone that is resisting the Holy Spirit, and I'm experiencing the consequences of that... The last word over this whole story is not their resistance, it's God's grace. The resurrection is the declaration that God's story has the last word over all things. So helpful, because when you're up against someone who's out to get you, it can build up all this rage and resentment and anger and vengeance and revenge. And And Jesus says, don't give that real state in your heart. Don't give it real state in your heart. Don't give it real state in your heart. It's so toxic for you. Don't do it. So how do you live? How do you live when someone's out to get you? When someone's clearly out to get you, how do you actually not just want to fight back all the things that are most natural? You remember and remember and recite the stories. This is God's story. 
not their story. The resurrection has the last word over you and over them, and grace and mercy and love and justice will triumph in the end. That's our great hope, because it's God's story. Listen, my friends, when you're in a conflict, you're having all kinds of conversations in your head, aren't you? And in that conversation in your head, here's what tends to happen. You're always either the victim or the hero, and they're always the villain. Now, there are times when that's true, but I want to encourage you to not fall into that entirely, right? It's so easy to paint yourself as overly heroic or overly the victim, not contributing to anything, and them overly evil. But sometimes there are situations where you're up against someone who is absolutely wicked. What do you do? What story are you going to tell? Are you going to rehearse your self-righteous story over and over again? Or, 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 like Stephen, can you hook into God's story? He's the one who has the first word and the last word over all things. You want to be a part of that story, the resurrection that has the final word over all things. God has the last word, and God is good. And that's actually how Stephen's story closes, even though it looks kind of mixed. Here's how Stephen's story closes again. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. While they're stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. At the close of Peter's words to the religious guys, his last words were, you are a bunch of stiff-necked people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. But here's what he says. Here's what the story shows. The stiff-necked resistors of the Spirit don't have the last word. God does. And so here's what Stephen does. In his worst moment, in the hardest moment of his life, you know what he does? He fixes his eyes on Jesus. That's what he does. In the horrors of his worst moments, he does not look at the people stoning him and killing him who are out to kill him. He looks at Jesus and says, that's where my strength comes from. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who is the resurrected king. That's where my strength comes from. That's where my hope comes from. That's where resilience comes from. My friends, one of my prayers for like the last eight years has been that I might have a resurrection resilience in me. That the resurrection power might give me a more resilient spirit in the face of global pandemics and criticism and all kinds of ups and downs of life and family stuff and church stuff. It's like I would be more resilient. That the Holy Spirit would fill me with the same resurrection power that filled Jesus. That same Jesus that Stephen cries out to, he's the guy that either one to five years earlier, this same group of people betrayed and turned over to Caesar, turned over to Pilate. And some of these guys were on that religious council. And if they're paying attention, they're having some deja vu. Because Stephen says the same things that Jesus said. Forgive them and receive my spirit. Same things that Jesus said on the cross one to five years earlier. And if these religious guys have any remembrance of that, they're having sort of twitchy. Because here's the, here's the thing. These religious guys think they're about to squash this kind of Jesus movement. But you know what's about to happen on the other side of this stoning? The followers of Jesus are going to go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And in spite of all kinds of religious and non-religious people trying to kill Christians and squash this movement, you know what's happened for the last 2,000 years? It has rolled on and on and on and on, changing more lives than anything else in human history. Today, all over the globe, almost every nation, almost every tongue, almost every tribe, almost every language, there are people gathered in Jesus' name because this is God's story, not the stiff-necked resistors of the Holy Spirit's story. And it will not be stopped. It will not be shaken. Though people are killed for it, 
He is good. He is faithful. He is a redeemer of all things. And he brings us and calls us together in his name to worship and to follow in this life all the way to the ends of the earth, to the ends of our days, and into glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's the story that Stephen hooks into in his worst moment, that he might be resilient in the face of persecution. Let's gather all this together. What does God do? What's God's signature? What does it look like here? I'm just going to put this all in one slide and we'll kind of pop through it real quick. God's signature redemption is he's redeeming wickedness and loss by weaving it into his purposes and his plans. That's the, that's the overarching work of God and the good news of it. A signature response might sound something like, Lord, this stinks, or something stronger, you might say. Would you redeem it by weaving it into your life-giving purposes? I am willing to do whatever you want me to do. Some signature resilience to remember and recite the story. This is God's story. God's story, God's story. No surprises. People have always resisted the spirit. This is God's story, not the people who are resistant to it, not the people who are against you, who are pushing back against the Holy Spirit. They don't have the last word. The Lord does. And fix your eyes on Jesus. He is faithful and good. The resurrected one. Chance for you to meditate on these things. This will be on the small piece of paper on the way out. Today, again, I want to invite you to respond and help us to respond to what God's doing uh, kind of in our midst. So there's a note card on your seat or beside your seat, and there's a, pen, a pencil or a pen in the seat pocket in front of you. And again, this morning, we're going to invite you to uh, feed back to uh, us and to capture what you're hearing about God's signature activity, because we want to hear about it not just individually, but also collectively. We want to grow in knowing what God's voice sounds like, what God's activity looks like. And then we want to grow in learning what signature response looks like. And if you have been here the last few weeks, you've seen out there on the board, there's a kind of cork board. And we're kind of capturing what's God saying to, our, to us individually and us as a church. And so on this note card, I'm going to invite you to write a couple things. On the left side, I'm going to invite you to write God's signature from today's passage looks like blank. You don't have to write the prompt. You're just writing, what does God's signature look like? What's standing out to you? I've given you a few starter words, but maybe there's a different kind of a thing that's standing out to you about God's signature activity. I want to invite you to write down on the left side. You don't, again, you don't have to write down the prompt. Just on the left side, what is God's signature activity from this passage? What does it look like? What's standing out to you as you uh, hear this passage and as we unpack it together? And then on the right side, faithful response from today's passage looks like what? What's a faithful response? Again, I've given you a few uh, words to start with, but maybe something else is standing out to you about how Stephen responds or how, uh, how the community of faith responds. So on the left side, you're writing down what God's signature from this passage looks like. On the right side, what's a faithful response? What's standing out to you about faithful response? How we persevere in the faith? What does that look like? Uh, we're going to give you one minute right now to kind of capture what's standing out to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of pull it back together here and uh, close out the message. But why don't you take just one minute Left side, what's, what's God's signature look like? Right side, what's a faithful response? What does that look like? Uh, and if you're at home, I invite you to sort of write this down as well, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, act on this here in just a minute.
right? You can finish writing that up if you want. Now, again, a couple, a couple of things you can do with this card. One, this might be your wildly important take-home. This might be the thing you need to take home, pray about, think about. Maybe you're in a situation right here, right now, where you need to do some work on what does it mean to cultivate resilience and how do I trust God and tell that story. Option number two is you can add this color's note card to the other colors. We have, two, we have a couple weeks out there already on the whiteboard, on the uh, corkboard. You can add just on the way out, just pop this on the corkboard as well to add to the voices of what God's saying to our community. And again, next week we'll sort of populate this word cloud of what God's saying to our whole congregation, our whole church. Because signature moments don't just happen with us individually. Signature moments happen to whole communities, whole churches. So we want to be more and more open to what God's saying to our church. So we invite you, if you're willing to do this, just pop it up there on the board on the way out and it'll be a chance for us to celebrate and name what God's doing here among us. Let me pray for us now as we close up our time the message. Jesus, thank you so much for your faithfulness and your goodness and your love for us. Thank you for being faithful when we're faithless. Lord God, thank you that this is your story we're a part of, not, not our story and not even uh, the resistance that we come up against story. Father, I pray for my friends who are here, who are up against it. They're feeling the, the cost of wickedness or loss. And Lord, we just pray that you would redeem it by weaving wickedness and loss into your purposes and plans. We name wickedness for what it is. It is evil. And yet you are capable of bringing good out of evil. Father, would you help us to not resist the Holy Spirit? Help us to not resist the Spirit, to be open to the Spirit, to follow the Spirit. Help us to remember and recite the story, to hook our lives into the story, to find ourselves in your story when we're up against wickedness, loss, tragedy. Help us to walk in the power of this story. Help us ultimately to fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. We trust you. We believe you. You are faithful. You are good. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.